thanks for coming out. It's, uh, it's, it's good to have you here, hoping to have some good conversation uh, this evening and to hear from you uh, a little more than just me rabbiting on. Um, obviously, it's been a big week, big weekend for New Zealand. And if you were uh, with us this morning, then we said some prayers and, and, and acknowledged what's going on. But I'm aware that uh, the impact of what's taken place in Christchurch, I think, is going to be experienced certainly by those directly impacted for a long time, well, for the rest of their lives. And for us as a nation, I think we're going to be wrestling with some of this for a while. Um, and I thought it would be good just to acknowledge that and just maybe to say a prayer as we begin this evening uh, but before we get into uh, what we want to say. But is there anyone in particular who would like to just offer a prayer for those particularly who are directly impacted by this in Christchurch? Anyone who would be willing to share a prayer for us, for them, tonight? If you're too shy, I can. You will? Okay. Father God, we're just... Um we're just shattered with the news of what's gone on there and we're just, our hearts are broken for those that are involved and the peacefulness of this little island way down south. It's been shattered too. And we just pray for those, those families and friends of those that are <clears throat> and waiting to hear waiting to hear who's um, about their relatives, Lord, and waiting to hear whether they'll live or die. And we just pray that you'd, they'd be conscious of you being around them, Father, and encouraging them and loving them. And I just really pray for all those who are caring for them, Father, and doing all the work that goes around, all that's involved, that there would be just be a real <clears throat> um, sense of care and love shared amongst everyone there, Father. We just pray for um, <clears throat> those directly involved, that you'd uphold them, Father, and give them everything that they need, Father, in expertise and in loving care. We pray for New Zealand, Father, that they would just look to themselves too, for every one of us, that we'd look to ourselves and examine the way we feel about different ones who are different from us. Father God, be with us tonight and um, I would just... I want to pray, Father, that you just give us continual insight into your word and may it strengthen us, Father, in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks very much. Well, um, yeah. Sometimes there are a few words, really, aren't there, for um, for what is going around. And in many respects, we've been impacted and touched by something that many other nations have experienced all too often. Uh, and 
um, it becomes apparent to me more so than ever how ridiculous the lines we draw between one another really are and how meaningless uh, those things are that, that people create such uh, unnecessary hatred. And I am, I guess, challenged, even as you were praying, you know, that uh, this is not just something out there or the horror of it is out there, uh, but that we must continually reflect on uh, our own hearts and the way we see those who are different from us, whether it's ethnic, racial, uh, religious, whatever it might be. Anyway, thank you. Um, we are going to continue on with our conversation uh, tonight that we started a couple of weeks ago. Who was here two weeks ago? A number of you. Some of you were, some of you weren't. We started uh, talking about uh, the Bible and we've really themed, um, I don't know how long yet, uh, we're running with the theme of so now what? Um, which really is to say what, how do we approach our Christian faith, some of our practices, things like reading the Bible, things like prayer, things like our spirituality, uh, in light of a theological journey that sometimes has led us to pull certain things apart and try and put them back together again. Um, what is it? Because sometimes I find, I have found in my own journey, that I go to engage in something and then I find, oh, I'm, I don't really, I used to do it that way. I used to say that when I prayed. And now I go to pray and I'm not sure <laughs> that way of praying fits with now with the things I've come to believe, for example. Or I go to read the Bible and maybe I used to just open it up and wait for the sun to just come through that little crack in the wall and appear upon my page and highlight to me the revelation of what God is saying right now. Uh, and now I find I struggle to read the Bible that way, but how do I read it? You know, these, these things I find in my own journey. Um, and so this year we're trying to explore some of that. How do we actually move forward with some of these aspects of our Christian life? Uh, and so we're spending a little bit of time talking about, that. I hope I didn't just horrify any of you that that's actually a Kraken. When I first uh, saw that, I thought it was an art installation Rob had done. Uh, and I thought it was amazing and beautiful, the way that there's, just, there's this crack and the light comes in just the way that it does. Anyway. Uh, no, it's not, because that's just sunlight coming through a crack in the wall. <laughs> anyway, uh, there you go. It's a natural phenomena of uh, artistic beauty and slightly concerning. Um, so yes, last time we were spending a bit of time talking about uh, the Bible. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we had this conversation about how we actually approach the Bible itself. And I guess in a sense, that's what we're talking about over these next few sessions. Um, and that in many respects, what happens when we go to the text, when we go to the text of the Christian tradition, the Old and New Testaments, uh, we don't just go to a text that, was, that sort of dropped out of heaven, that was authored by God, uh, with people in a trance sort of dangling their pen over the paper dictating whatever boomed from the sky, uh, but that somehow there's this uh, collection of stories, poems, songs, um, prophecy, all sorts of things that 
were formed and collected over a long period of time that carry this story that as we immerse ourselves in it and wrestle with it, we are joining in a, a tradition, a conversation, a wisdom tradition, if you like, wrestling with who God is and what God is like and what God might be up to and what it means to be human and our experience of the divine and of one another. And uh, so you can't just necessarily dip in and out of the text at any point in time and just go, right, oh, I'm just going to grab a word for Leviticus. It's going to bless my life and bless yours. Uh, We have to, in a sense, wrestle with the text that we engage with and figure out what do we do with this, what insights uh, emerge in these accounts, uh, and also how over time do you see this progressing conversation about God and that everybody in the Bible, when they say the word God, doesn't always mean exactly the same thing depending on which part of the story you dip into. And so um, we talked a bit about that last time. And there's this quote. Uh, oh, yes, that's what we're going to do. But, uh, before we get to that, there's this quote from Peter Enns uh, that I put up last time, which says, No part of my faith can steer clear from wisdom questions. What is God like here and now? What do I mean when I say God? What does it mean to believe and trust in this God? I ponder these questions by taking seriously this ancient, ambiguous and diverse Bible we have, as well as honouring my humanity, my experiences, my reasoning, when and where I was born, and I try to get all of these factors to talk to each other. Now we bring this text to the table, but we read it at a certain time and place ourselves. Uh, And what you find when you read Scripture is it's not always just a case of, uh, in fact, even when it sounds quite straightforward, it's often not that straightforward, right? Uh, and and so there is ambiguity in it. Sometimes you can see in the Old Testament story, for example, this kind of jostling, this wrestling, this even disagreement at times about what God is like and this ongoing conversation. And if you talk to uh, Jewish readers of the text, they're generally much more comfortable with that idea than modern Christians are. The idea that the text is something to wrestle with and kind of uh, discuss and thrash out together and say, well, I don't know, and I, I'd like to see it from this perspective and in that perspective. So uh, we want to take a little bit of a cue from that and see if that helps us in the way that we engage in Scripture. Is that cool? So you're all right, you're all right so far? Yeah, okay, good. Um, so I want to come back to this uh, question of myth then. That's a funny word to use. I think if I'd have put that word up, uh, 20 years ago, I would have been very disappointed in myself uh, to use that word about Scripture uh, and some aspects of it. But there are, there are some very curious stories in the Bible, uh, very peculiar, and sometimes it's a bit hard to know what to do with them. Uh, and some people want to take a very little, so this is where my uh, sweatshirt theme comes in. So we read the story, you know, right near the beginning of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, you have a story in which a talking snake appears, for example. Um, a snake who apparently does not live on the ground but lives in the trees. Uh, his, his being consigned to the ground happens sort of later in the story as a punishment for his deception. So you have um, two people hanging out who don't realise they're naked talking to a snake, which... Uh, 
I grew up with them. I was like, yeah, of course, that's the way that's the way the world began. Uh, and then, and you know, I went off to university. I've probably said this before, and I, or maybe it was either it was either high school biology or it was university anatomy, where I I look I was looking at the diagrams and counting the ribs on the men and the women and being like, I mean, I was taught that men had one less rib than women uh, because that's how God made Eve because He took the rib from Adam and made Eve, and that's why men have one less rib than women. And I was sitting there counting. I was like, the diagrams incorrect. <laughs> and then realizing the diagram was not incorrect, um, my Sunday school teacher was incorrect. Uh, <laughs> and so you know, there and these these kinds of stories pop. You talking snakes, talking uh, donkeys. Um, you got a story about why there are so many languages in the world. You know, with the Tower of Babel, and and some people want to look at these and say, well, clearly this is exactly what happened. So that's what we've got to do with this text. And in fact, spend 80% of our time trying to prove it could have happened. Or from another perspective, you might read that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Clearly, that couldn't happen. Therefore, these stories are a bit big waste of time. What a bunch of silly rubbish people believing those stories. And often you find people landing in those two camps. I guess more conservative uh, I don't know what the right word is. Little literal reading Christians like certainly what I grew up with, uh, immersed in and adopting wholeheartedly. You know this very literal reading of these stories. Yes, it must have happened exactly this way. Or people who read them and say, "Well, obviously it's trying to say this is how things happened, but we know it couldn't have happened that way." So, um, are these the only two options? I guess that's the question for tonight. Or is there? And I want to say probably not because I haven't painted either of those options very well so far. Um, but is, are there some other ways of approaching some of these stories that might actually be meaningful and helpful to us? Uh, and one of, the way, one of the things we need to do in this sense then is to think about the way ancient people uh, communicated their story, the way ancient people interpreted, understood and communicated their reality. Um, and one of the things that we tend to do in the modern world even though we're kind of postmodern, or some say now post postmodern, um, or something, uh, we're still kind of modern people in the sense that if you go off to university and you uh, study history and then you go off to write a history book, uh, there's a certain set of criteria that you have around deciding is something true or not, right? Yeah? So you want to do your research. Did this really happen? Exactly what happened? In this uh, historical account, how can we figure out the details? How can we, you know, look at this from multiple perspectives? How can we find primary sources and secondary sources that back up what's actually gone on in this particular uh, historical moment? And then we try and talk about it in that kind of way. And that's a it's a it's a modern way of thinking about truth, either historically or you might take a scientific approach and say, well, how, what is true? And you might say, well. Uh, you need to test, you need to do an experiment, you need to figure out can we prove that this is true by a repeatable experiment of some kind, uh, by some kind of theory that, when, that we can you know, pose a hypothesis, test the hypothesis. You probably remember this from high school science. If you did high school science, you know, you propose a hypothesis and then you come up with an experiment to test it um, so that you can develop some kind of proof and figure out what is true. Uh, but that's, these are not the only ways to think about truth either. Um, 
So we might say, for example, or we might ask, can a poem be true? What do you think? Can a poem be true? Yeah. But when we say a poem is true, we're saying it's true in a different way than we're probably saying a calculus equation is true. I loved calculus for some weird reason. All those X's and Y's, it was a great time. It made so much sense to me. Or oh, algebra, Al you know? Any lovers of algebra out there? Yes, I've got a few algebra people. I seriously doubted whether I'd get some hands for that, but hey. Uh, good. So um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, which is where much of our, well, where our Old Testament originates, um, we're thinking about ancient uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaan or Israel, and all, all through that part of the world, that kind of Middle Eastern world, the ancient Near East is, is the way we talk about it. You know, a couple of thousand years ago, more, 3,000 or so years ago, you're not uh, necessarily applying modern historical and scientific method to the way that you tell your stories. Um, but especially when you start to think about the way they would tell their origin stories, uh, what they were doing was interpreting their experience and telling these stories that captured some fundamental things they believed um, and so there's a couple of terms we can use to describe this uh, that scholars use. One is mythicized history, uh, or one is theological history, which is the sense of going back and talking about your past, but to do so uh, in theological terms rather than modern historical and analytical terms, if that makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean... Therefore, nothing that's in the stories happened, necessarily. Um, but it is a certain way of telling your own story. And this is the primary way in the ancient Near East to tell their own story. Uh, sometimes scholars will talk about this as mythicized history uh, as well. So uh, we're going to look at a couple of examples this evening and kind of look at them together and see what truth we might find lying in these stories. Not truth lying in the stories, that was a bad way of phrasing it. Uh, embedded, thank you, in the stories. Um, so the question, the primary question for us, I don't think should be, uh, did this happen exactly this way and can we argue for the next 100 years about the fact that, yes, it happened exactly this way and devote all our energy to that. Because even if after 100 years of trying to say, yes, it really happened this way and finding out that, yes, it really did happen this way, we will find we've still missed the point because the point of the story was never it happened exactly this way. <laughs> There's theological ideas that are being communicated in these stories that are being wrestled with, that are being negotiated, that if we spend all our time just being obsessed about the literal, literal reading of the text, uh, we, we miss the point of the text itself. So we, uh, does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, okay. Um, so instead, perhaps the questions might be, what do we learn about the way they see God and reality in the telling of this story? And we might even ask, as we look at the Bible as a wisdom tradition to engage with, how does that change over time? Where's the story going when you take a big step back and look at the whole story unfolding? 
and especially for Christians in light of Jesus and the way Jesus impacts on our reading of these stories. Okay, so what I want to do is give us a few questions to ask of these kinds of tales, and then we'll uh, have a look at a few. Is that all right? Yeah. Great. Okay. So, here's some questions we could ask. What purpose is there in telling this story? Why tell the story at all? Uh, Now, that might seem like a super obvious question, but it's often a question we miss. Uh, In fact, this is just a good biblical interpretation question, regardless of the kind of text you're engaging with. Why is this here? And then why have communities over hundreds and thousands of years decided that'd be a good story to keep telling? Yeah? So that's a question to think about and to consider. Uh, What does this story, as I said before, tell us about how they understood God and humanity? Because what we find is when we read these stories, they weren't directly written to us, right? They're written uh, a long time ago uh, in a different place at a different time in a different language with a different worldview. And uh, so trying to get a sense of what do we, what kind of insight do we get into how they were thinking about things and the way that they tell the story, how they were thinking about God and one another. We might also ask the question, is, is this similar or different to those in neighbouring nations? Because uh, one of the things you find is that uh, ancient Israel, in this example, is not the only nation telling stories not the only nation telling origin stories, telling stories, we might say, of creation, not the only nation telling stories of a flood. Uh, They are not the only nation uh, who are talking about uh, the divine and human experience. And so sometimes you find really big similarities between their stories and the stories of the nations around them. And sometimes there are important differences So are there ways to think about that that might help us understand the way they're theologically interpreting history along the way and making sense of it out of given what they believe about God? Is that all right? Uh, And then where does the story fit in the evolving idea and scripture of who God is and what God is like? Um, And you can see there is this trajectory, this unfolding trajectory If you read the book of Genesis and Exodus, for example, we don't find God revealing God's self as Yahweh until Moses at the burning bush. So prior to that point, it's just the general kind of uh, Elohim, most high God. And yet, uh, and so Abraham is called by the most high God into this path that he chooses. But in the story of Moses, uh, we find this God reveals God's self with this name that we pronounce Yahweh, although we don't really know how it's pronounced. Um, but then in the course of the story, continually this wrestling with who God is and what God is like. God is a warrior who will defeat our enemies. God is a, uh, a God who desires our blood sacrifices. And then later on, actually, No, I don't think God is a God who wants our blood sacrifices. So says uh, a number of the prophets, in fact, who say God doesn't really, God's not so interested in all of the uh, blood of the animals. 
Jeremiah, I think we mentioned last time, goes as far as saying, God never told us to do sacrifices when we came out of Egypt. <laughs> Which you're like, well, clearly he did. But uh, Jeremiah wants to argue that point of view uh, with the people of Israel. And so there's this ongoing wrestling with who is God and what is God like and what does God want and what does that mean for us? And that carries right into the Jesus tradition itself, where Jesus is, for Christians, the embodiment of who God is and what God is like. And so that becomes the lens through which we interpret uh, this conversation about God. All right? Okay. I'll give you a, I did say I wasn't going to wrap it on the whole time. So far, I've done a lot of it, but soon I shall stop. Um, okay. And when I say soon, I say pretty much about now. What I'd, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the creation story. So now Greg uh, led the way this morning by bringing a real physical Bible into the room. It was a powerful time. <laughs> Does anyone have a real physical Bible with them? Yeah? Nah, didn't think so. You got a phone? All right. It's flat. Your phone's flat. Oh, look. The old Bible never gets flat, does it? The, uh, the paper version. Never runs out of battery. Uh, I'd like us to think a little bit about the creation story that we find. Uh, many of you will be familiar with it because it's right at the beginning. And if you've ever tried to read your Bible from front to back, you'll at least usually get through the first couple of chapters um, before you lose your way. So I'd like for us to think about it in relationship perhaps to some of these questions. Um, and there's actually two creation accounts at the beginning of Genesis. There's Genesis chapter 1, and then there's Genesis 2 and 3, which are told slightly differently. Um, so have a little bit of a, of a read of that, perhaps at your, oh, you're conveniently placed at tables. Um, have a discussion. You may not need, I, I don't necessarily think you'll need to read through, uh, you know, chapters and chapters and chapters of Genesis, because many of you will be familiar with significant elements of the story. Uh, but what are some of those elements? What are some of the big elements in the story? What are the things that stand out to you in the story uh, of creation itself in Genesis? And then we'll see where that lands us. Cool? So you're going to have a little read of the creation or a, a talk about the creation story and think about what are the big things that stand out to you? Um, why do you think the story might have been written in the way that it is? Um, and what does it tell us about what they believed about God and humanity. Have a bit of a conversation about that for a moment. All right. So one of the things that I find happens is that when we give ourselves a set of questions, it opens up a certain kind of conversation. Now, I grew up in, uh, as many of you know, more of my when I grew up stories, uh, but, you know, in a, in a, with, with um, creation science magazines everywhere and a real determination to uh, prove that this is literally how it happened. Uh, and it wasn't until many years later when I find myself, you know, studying Scripture properly <laughs> that, all, you know, all of these different questions I find uh, are helping me to engage in the story in a totally different way uh, and having a different kind of discussion, different kind of conversation. Uh, firstly, what are the things that stand out to you in the story, uh, what 
initial observations do you make about it? Anybody? God talks, okay, yes. Uh, message about I felt there was a strong message about um, how God intended plant and seed to be and that Monsantos has no right to it it says let the land produce vegetation seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds and at the end it says Where was it? Again, it says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So I think that's quite a clear instruction too of how we have to look after our plant life. Cool, thank you. Anyone else? Initial observations from the text? So in chapter 1 and then 2 um, up to verse 3, it's almost quite poetic um, and quite logical. And then it, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, um, on five, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. Yet, way back, you know, just the chapter before, we're talking about it. Seems a bit odd. Sure. So what we actually have in, in the first couple of chapters there is at the end of verse 3 of chapter 2, uh, the first account, so, so what seems likely is that there are two oral traditions within the people that have been carried down with the people of Israel They're, because that's how the stories were transmitted from generation to generation. You gather around, you tell the story. Uh, and so one of those traditions uh, goes from Genesis 1-1 through to chapter 2, verse 3. And then from verse 4, a second tradition uh, is incorporated. Now, the Old Testament is compiled and edited and massaged uh, much later on when the people are in, in exile. That's where most of that happens. Um, so when Jerusalem has been destroyed, much towards the latter part of the Old Testament story. And so they're pulling these stories together and putting them together in such a way as to uh, tell their own uh, story in this kind of way. So you do have two different stories in a sense. So suddenly it feels like, hang on, we just jump back in the story. But things are happening in a slightly different order as well because you've got in the first chapter, uh, shrubs appear before people. In the second chapter, people appear before shrubs. So just for starters. Uh, and yes, and the first chapter has this poetic rhythm to it. There's, there's, a, there's a beat, right? There's a, there's a vibe to the first account. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And the Lord saw that it was good and there was evening and morning the second day. And there's these repetitive little refrains that, that flow all the way through it. And when you look at chapter one, there's this kind of overarching sense of movement across it in this very beautiful poetic way. There's creating of space and then there's filling of space. There's dividing waters from waters and then there's filling the water above with the sky and birds and then the waters below with fish. Um, this is creating a space and then filling of space, this rhythm and this beauty uh, to the way the story is told. Then the second account is like a zoom in, you're down on the ground in the mix 
uh, and things are happening slightly differently. The story is being told in a different way and even happening in a different kind of order. All right, any other observations of the story? Yeah. Uh, one summary of Genesis is that something terrible happened and man blamed the woman and the woman blamed the snake and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Ken, for that <laughs> wonderful, wonderful observation. <laughs> So we're talking, um, if we want to move back from Jesus, then we go back a couple of hundred years to the Maccabean Revolution, uh, back another couple of hundred years to the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, so most of it's compiled and put together around then. Now that's drawing on oral traditions that have come down uh, through Israel's story, uh, but they're put together uh, in a certain kind of way, uh, Most, many of them at that time. Um, And, that, and that's where, you know, if we try and impl- uh, impose modern categories on these old texts, then we run ourselves into trouble quite quickly because we're like, well, hang on, they must have got the odd detail wrong along the way. Uh, no wonder the sun doesn't appear till day four, but day and night appears on day one. Uh, that must have been the old Chinese whispers game on, uh, on about the 300th year that story was going around. Um, but... But that's a very modern way of thinking about what they're trying to do because what they're trying to do is communicate uh, deep uh, ideas about God and about humanity and, and what it means to be them as a people and as, an, and as a nation. Um, let's, let's have a little look because these, these stories don't emerge in isolation. You might have seen some of this before. I, I might have done this a few years ago, but I know you don't remember everything we do uh, from a few years ago. Although many of you, I'm sure, just put that recording on every night before you go to sleep. (laughs) Um, There are other creation stories in the ancient world, uh, especially from the nations immediately surrounding uh, where the story of Israel emerges. One of them is the Enuma Elish. I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite long. Um, uh, But what's happening at this point of the story is that there's a few gods uh, so the Enuma Elish is, is um, I think Babylon's story from memory. And uh, so that's sort of a neighbouring region. And they've got their own creation story. A few of the gods are having a bit of a time with one another. A bit of argy-bargy, we might say that. Uh, and so the story, this, we'll just drop into the story at this point. It says, Marduk strengthened his hold on the vanquished gods and turned back to Tiamat, whom he had bound, with his unsparing mace, he crushed her skull. Then the Lord rested and contemplated her corpse. So these are two gods who are fighting here, uh, Marduk and Tiamat. Uh, intent on dividing the form and doing skillful work, he split it like a dried fish, set up one half and made it the firmament, drew a skin over it, posted guards and instructed them not to let its waters escape. Uh, what's being created here? Hmm? Mother, Earth. Mother Earth, the sea and the... See in the sky. So firmament, 
is that which is above. And in the ancient world, they believed that the sky was a body of water. There was a body of water up there uh, and a body of water below. And that's why it rains, right? Because the rain comes down from up there. So there's obviously a big body of water up there <laughs> hanging out. Because the earth is also not a globe at this point in time, right? It's more like a dome and there's a big body of water that sits above the flat land and a big dome above the sky. Cool? Uh, and so here we've got the Enuma Elish version of and then God separated the waters from the waters and created the firmament above and the waters below. Except in this case, Marduk uses the body of his defeated foe, Tiamat, uh, one of the goddesses, uh, uses her body to essentially create uh, the waters below and the waters above. Yeah? Uh, here's another little excerpt. When Marduk hears the words of the gods, his heart prompts him to fashion artful works. Opening mouth, he addresses Ea, who's another god, uh, to impart the plan he had conceived and hid heart. Blood I will mass and cause bones to be. This sounds like a bit like Roald Dahl, but... Uh, blood I will mass and cause bones to be. I will establish a savage man shall be his name. Verily savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So what's being created here? Human, humankind. Um, human called man who shall be a savage and who will do the work of the gods so that they can relax for once because they're very tired with all the work they have to do. Uh, the Atrahasis epic, which is uh, another Mesopotamian creation story. Uh, there's a lot of crossover in various gods in and between these different regions and these different stories. They kind of uh, flow and meld into one another over time. The Enumeralish, it's Babylonian. Uh, so this one says, When the gods, man-like, bore the labour, carried the load, the gods' load was great, the toil grievous, the toil excessive, more um, pity for the gods about the amount of work they have to do. The great Anunnaku, you know them, the seven, were making the Agiju undertake the toil, create a human to bear the yoke, the task of Enlil, let man carry the load of the gods, let them slaughter one god so that all gods may be purified by the dipping. Now, this is the Atrahasis version of creating humankind. And here, actually, one of the gods is killed and essentially used to create humankind. Again, to carry the load of the gods and to do their work. All right. Have another little conversation at your table uh, and ask yourselves the question, what's... What are some of the big, and I don't mean necessarily all of the little details, do, is there a different vibe to these stories uh, from the one we were just reading in Genesis? Uh, and if so, what's the different vibe? What's the different feeling you pick up? Uh, is there a different perspective on God being talked about? And if so, uh, what? Cool. So have that little conversation among yourselves. Once again, we could probably talk about that for a while. Uh, and people do. People write books on it. So, you know, it's probably no surprise if we can't sum it up in four minutes. Um, but what contrasts stand out to you? We notice that, the, we notice that um, 
the God of the Bible doesn't seem to be quite so violent. Okay, but less violence in this particular story, isn't there? None. So, yes. Okay, there's one God. Uh, and yes. Let us make man in our image. Yeah. Who was us? An ongoing conversation amongst scholars. Um, okay. So in the story that Israel's telling, and again, I want to, we're getting away from, but does, did it happen exactly this way or not? Because I think that, firstly, we actually know it didn't. Pretty much. I mean, we weren't there, obviously, but we can we can know enough scientifically to know that a, a, a straight, even just comparing chapter one and chapter two, we know it's just a straight literal, literal reading is not helping us in terms of trying to understand the precise mechanics of how the world comes into existence. But what we can say is the way story of Israel is telling this origin story, they're saying something very different about God and about the reality that they see. They emphasise no violence. Like if you were in the ancient world, almost all of the stories are like this one, right? And then you bump into the story that this peculiar group of people are telling in which there's zero violence and the repeated naming of reality as good. It's, uh, this is theological history. This is trying to say something about God what they believe about God. Anything else that stands out? Contrast? Right, so, so in these other stories, people are savages. Uh, so the violence that we see in the gods is likely going to be reflected in the behaviour of the people. Um, God doesn't Yeah. so you have these these angry, violent gods uh, warring with one another, who then create slaves and savages to do their work. Um, in the Genesis accounts, there's this phrase created in the image of God. Um, which itself is a profound statement in the ancient world where there were very set hierarchies of who was important and who was not. Often the kings were in the divine image. Uh, the way that they would talk about their kings in the ancient world was often as as almost a divine. I mean, that followed right through into the Roman Empire in the first century when there was a whole cult of worship around the Caesars who saw themselves as uh, almost divine type figures as kings of the empire. Uh, and this is a tradition that goes right back into the ancient world. Uh, and yet here we've got all of humankind uh, being named as being in God's image. Uh, now, in, in the Genesis 2 and 3, they are put in the garden to work it, to take care of it. But the kind of, the way that story is told is very different from the um, gods are tired of doing stuff, so we're going to make some people to do all our stuff for us. That's, that's a very different vibe. It's almost as if the myths are created to justify the type of shrine. 
it on the, the type of tribe they created and that, that sort of justified their... So whether they're doing it to justify or just to reflect, I think, yeah, either of those are, uh, are probable or possible at different times. That the, that the myths they tell reflect their understanding of the world and what it's like. You live in the ancient world, you're always involved in conflict and competition and jostling for resource and uh, there's violence. And so what are, what are the gods like? Probably the same. So it's actually in its own way quite a revolutionary idea to look at that same world and say, what if God is good and this is all supposed to be good? <laughs> um, I mean, that's almost the, the, the this kind of story that we get laughed at most often because look at reality around us. It's clearly not that good. So why would you tell the story? And yet there's something in the story carried by these people that says it's, there's a different way to be. Perhaps God is not like this after all. Perhaps God is in fact is good. Perhaps we're not created to be slaves and savages either. Yeah? Um, there's lots more we could say about this story. But you can see what we're doing here is rather than getting obsessed with the literal scientific analysis of the account. We're trying to say what meaning is carried in the story. Uh, why would the story have been told? How did it contrast? How did it compare with other nations? Uh, and this opens up a different set of questions for us to wrestle with and to enter into uh, the conversation and to wrestle with these stories too. And say, so, well, yes, what do we believe lies at the heart of fundamental reality? What do we believe God is like? Do we still believe that it's peace and goodness uh, that truly is to lie at the heart of things? Or do we find ourselves buying into the other stories that we are still told, even if they're not the innumerable-ish um, stories of competition and clamber your way to the top and violence and whatever it might be. Yeah? Does this make sense? Roughly speaking? Sort of, maybe? Yeah. In fact, there's this movement through, if you read the Genesis 1 story, there's this movement from chaos to order as you follow the trajectory of the story. Through. So the other stories are, are generally are a bit chaotic, aren't they? They are, they are violence and they are gods competing with one another. Sometimes the gods are arguing about what the best thing to do next is. Uh, they're obviously getting into fights and, and war with one another. Uh, but in the story of Genesis, you see this movement from chaos. So in the beginning, uh, the earth is formless and void and darkness is over the and darkness covers the earth. Uh, there's this sense of chaos and unknown, uh, and there's, it's just kind of in, an endless sea, if you like, which is a symbol of chaos in the ancient world. Uh, and then over the course of that chapter, over the course of that beautiful poetic um, narrative, piece of theology, order and, and shape and life is given in this very intentional and, and beautiful way. 
Uh, and the whole trajectory of the story is from evening to morning, which is from dark to light. So every day starts with evening and goes through to the morning because it's symbolic of this movement from dark to light and chaos to order. Uh, so this idea that somehow God is the one who brings uh, order and shape to our lives rather than the one who is simply another agent of chaos, another agent or agents of discord and of violence and of warfare between one another. Yes, Katerina. Sure. Yeah. So there's something beautiful and creative about them in, in contrast. Yeah. Um, talk about um, the, the different um, the the agency that um, that seems to be apparent in the last two. Uh, we seem to be. Um, tools for the gods to, to play with. And um, I feel like um, the, in, in the creative story, I feel there's a sense of freedom and um, that, that we are given agency to, be, to take part in the, in the creation after God has established those things that he did at the beginning. But I think the reality is we live in this world as well. <laughs> we, I mean, we just have to point to Friday so it's the, as you say, it's that um, what are the words that are constantly being spoken? And I think the, the key is the words. I mean, God said he spoke and it was. And, and I think that that is the key in terms of telling ourselves the narrative that we believe in. And I think it's a beautiful narrative where we constantly remember the narrative of, um, of our, our, our creator, which is peace and love, aroha, and family and and all those things, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful reflection and I think um, very true because we are all telling ourselves or being told stories about what matters all the time. And what are those stories? Let's pay attention to them. And the reminder to continue telling this story is not because we want to get it into the schools to make sure the young people don't get swayed by all that science garbage, you know. <laughs> the reason we keep telling this story, instead of getting obsessed with that stuff, is because it captures some beautiful theological uh, reality which says there is a different way to be in the world and that in the way God desires, it's not really meant to be like this, the way we see violence unfold, the way we see this stuff unfold, is not the way that God desires it to be, uh, is not the way it has to be. Uh, but instead, there's something else going on here that we can become a part of. And you're right, I think uh, this instruction to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh, is, in, in the, when, you, when you read it in contrast to these other stories is this profound responsibility and also creative license to, to enter into the world and to participate in it and to help it flourish and be formed and be shaped in beautiful ways. And that's, um, that's the kind of story they told themselves about what it meant to be human. Uh, and I think that's a story that still matters, a story that's still beautiful for us.
All right, you okay? Um, we kind of skipped our break, didn't we? So what we'll do is we'll tackle it. Because you're all sitting down looking very relaxed, I reckon you're fine. Uh, uh, we're going to have dinner soon. But I'd like to just briefly mention another story. Is that okay? Uh, oh, I already asked that question. Here we go. That's as good as your joke. I knew you'd laugh at that one, Ken. In some of the Christian schools, they taught that Darwin made a monkey of himself. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Tell you what. There's, uh, the dad jokes are coming thick and fast from over this corner. Uh, <laughs> but then I did put one up also. Uh, the story of the flood. Now... This story can be a bit confusing in relation to the first one we just read because it seems like we started off with harmony and a God who's loving and not violent. And then a few chapters later, God seems to have had a, a, a bit of a um, personality change, right? Doesn't it? Because what happens in the flood story? God wipes nearly everybody out, right? And everything, all the trees. How high does the water get? That's when all the dinosaurs drowned, that's right, yes. <laughs> they couldn't get on the ark. <laughs> um, in fact, the story leading up to, to the flood says God regrets uh, his decision to even create humankind in the first place because he's so disappointed with how the project has turned out. Uh, so it says, God regrets having made humankind. So you've gone from this beautiful start to the story of like God regretting, oh man, literally. Uh, this is not how this was supposed to go. And so I think what I'll do is just, I've got a couple of options, I suppose. I could just, I could just wipe it out. Or we could try and do a mission reboot, which is the, uh, the choice, the way the story goes, right? Which is to pick one family and try to start again. So he picks the only righteous man left in the world. Apparently, Noah. Now, again, there are, there are these mythological elements to the story, right, which should stand out to us. One is there's only one righteous man in the whole world. These kind of big kind of um, exaggerated statements. Uh, the water that covers even the highest mountains and covers the whole world. Now, again, you're in the ancient world. How much of the world do you think they know? Not much. <laughs> Um, they know the kind of area they live in. Um, how do you fit all of the uh, animals on the boat? And, and people do try and work this out, try and get all the dimensions and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but literally, uh, the, uh, you know, the idea that all of, all of the animals in the world could have got on the ark um, should, this all should stand out to you and not make you go, oh, therefore, this is all a bunch of rubbish, but to say, it's not that kind of story. It's a different kind of story, right? It's not, a, it's not meant to just detail exactly how all the animals made it through. It's a different kind of story. Now, sorry if I'm... Look, no one was there. So, hey, I'm not saying it did or it didn't happen exactly like this. Uh, but once again, it's not the only flood story in the ancient Near East. Uh, you've got, for example, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which we won't go through, but some of, the, some of those gods turn up again. Ea, Ea turns up again. 
Uh, we've got Anu, Enlil, Ninurta, Enugi, a bunch of different gods. Now, the Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, is one of the oldest documents that we have uh, that tell these origin stories uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, predates pretty much the, the versions of the texts we have of any of the Old Testament accounts and tells a story uh, of the gods who, again, are, are having a bit of a conflict um, but decide uh, that humans are making too much noise. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, humankind is basically pissing off all of the gods because they're making such a racket, they are disturbing the rest of the gods, which, uh, as in their rest, which I assume they're getting because humans are doing all of the work at this point in the story. So um, the gods are very upset about all of this noise and decide, let's wipe everybody out. In particular, one of them is quite keen on this idea. Uh, but Ea, one of the, uh, one of the gods, uh, is not keen to kill everybody. And so he does a little side uh, deal with this chap named Utnapishtim. It's probably not how you say it, but anyway. Um, and tells them of the plans and says, you should build a boat to save yourself and your family. And so he does. And he builds a boat. And then when the waters recede, and in this story they only last seven days, I think, but when the waters recede, the boat lands on top of a mountain and then he sends out three birds to go and find land. Uh, and then eventually one of the birds comes, you know, one bird, the last bird doesn't come back and so he knows oh, it's safe to go outside. So there are some real similarities with the story of Noah and Noah's Ark, aren't there? Yes? So... Um, For sake of time, we won't go through it in massive detail other than to say, again, that same set of questions becomes helpful to us. Um, we're dealing with ancient people wrestling with these stories that everybody was telling. And it's likely that there were some um, cataclysmic floods in those parts of the world. That's probably why those stories were told. Uh, very unlikely science would tell us that those floods covered the entire globe, including Mount Everest and everything, because that's a lot of water. It's a, it's a, it's a good dose of rain. Um, but it seems like there were probably some floods in the region that really were cataclysmic events. And what you tended to do in the ancient world was to interpret those events through what it was that you thought God or the gods were doing. The gods must be unhappy with us uh, because look what's happened. Look at this devastation that's taken place. And so these, this is this mythologized or theolo theologized history, if you like, uh, trying to make sense of their experience in the ancient world. Uh, and so in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, again, you've got these gods who are in conflict. You've got one god who kind of says, hey, here's a way to escape. Uh, you've got another, one of the goddesses who says, you know what, uh, I'm not going to let this happen again. And so here's a little rainbow in the sky. So there are some real similar themes. Um, but again, there are some important differences between those stories. Uh, in the story of Noah and the flood in Genesis, uh, we don't have noise being the primary <laughs> problem. There is a, and so you don't, even though to us, when we think about the flood story, God seems very kind of, almost petty and violent, right? Just wiping everybody out like that. That's a bit full on. At the time, it's, a, it's quite a progressive view of God. 
Now that might seem like a weird thing to say, but if we enter back into the ancient world and the way they understood reality and the events that unfolded, you have a God who is uh, in complete control of the situation, who can indeed promise never to do this again and keep that promise. Uh, you have, um, again, this beautiful, cover, this beautiful command of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is given again to Noah and his family after the flood. And so there's the sense that they are interpreting their history and their experience and saying, all of this has happened um, because ultimately we have become the wrong kind, we have become uh, distorted in who we are and the way we're living in the world. This is not about noise and a bunch of gods getting upset about noise, uh, but about a need to be different than that, a need to be different uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to be the image of God in the world. So they reinterpret those stories and tell them in a different way, tell them with a different sense of meaning, tell them in a way that says uh, God is the kind of God who will not do this again. God is the kind of God who doesn't just get upset about noise, but who truly wants us to be different kinds of people. Uh, to us, looking back, you're like, gee, that seems pretty... Well, but at the time, it's a step forward in their thinking about God. It's not the end point. And that's, I think, something helpful to think about when we say, where does this fit within the evolving view of God that we see in Scripture? So you don't just land there and go, right, that's what God is like then. You say, at the time, that's a big leap forward in what God is like, but they continue taking steps forward along the way. Uh, and by the time you get to the Jesus story, he's able to say, well, this is not what God is like. Um, God is not the petty, violent God who just wants to wipe people out. God is the God who says, forgive again and again and again. Does that make some sense? So the Jews yeah. would have known of these other um, sort of myths before they had really written their own. Um, that seems to be what happens sometimes. They, I mean, they're emerging, they're emerging at the same time as these other, you know, this is, if we go into the ancient Near East, we've got all of these people groups who are growing, these emerging um, sort of sections of that part of the world who are all, you know, telling these stories. And there is this emerging identity. And so I'm sure... Very early on, there's a lot of crossover in these stories. And over time, they're like, actually, how, what do we think about this? What do we want to say about this? What do we believe about this? And so they tell those stories with their uh, interpretation, their understanding of who God is and what God is like. Um, so if we go back to that. Um, this... Um, quote from Pete Enns that I mentioned at the beginning. What we're seeing them do is wrestle with these questions of what God is like, what is reality, what does it mean to be human? And then we enter into that conversation and we do the same, knowing what we know now. But what we realise is these stories are wrestling with the same fundamental questions that we continue to wrestle with. Is this a good world or not? Is God a good God or not? Uh, what do we believe about the human experience? What do we believe God 
is like. Now, this might feel kind of like, oh, now I'm not quite sure how to tackle the thing. Um, but in a sense, that's okay. Because what it's inviting you to do is to say, what if I tried taking a different set of questions to some of these stories? What kind of conversations might start to come to the surface? And then ask the question, what do I, well, how does that shape me now? What do I think about that? How do I enter into this conversation? Uh, how do I bring the insight of my own time and my own day and my own understanding, my own experience into contact with these ancient stories and say this is all a part of our tradition that we wrestle with, that we engage with. Uh, and then as we do so, we, in the process of that conversation, come to know God a little more deeply and ourselves sometimes. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now we were going to tackle Jonah as well, but I think we've run out of time for Jonah. Jonah's the fun story. Um, Jonah's a little bit different from the other two in that Jonah is kind of intentionally, like it's, a, it's written as a, as a comedy drama. Um, it's supposed to be hilarious, but also with a very serious message, ultimately. Um, but we can perhaps talk about that another time. Um, but again, the clues for you, big giant fish swallowing Jonah, in the, in the fish, he's having a good old prayer time for a few nights, days and nights. Um, all of these elements that tell you, maybe there's something else going on in this story than me trying to figure out, which is what, believe you know, when I was younger, there was a lot of time spent trying to figure out how Jonah could survive in the belly of a big fish for three days and three nights. And there were all sorts of theories on it. And Yes, Ken? Abraham, there weren't Jews before Abraham. Right. Well, no, in the, in the way that the story is told, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, yeah. But there were no Jews before. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. So that's 2,000 years from the flood to Abraham. So when you start thinking about the Jewish yeah. narrative, um, that, that's, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. Unless you say... Um, Post Abraham, they put everything together. And now I'll tell you the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Where did Noah keep his bees? In the archives. <laughs> Thank you. Three for three. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think when. When you stop thinking about this story as sort of being written by God, which is, I guess, what I, again, grew up with, which is the kind of God wrote the Bible and realised that uh, one of the ways of saying this is, uh, Peter Enns talks about this, is God lets his children tell the story, you know. Uh, and so the story is framed very much in the context and way of communicating and understanding reality uh, that people and their experience. Uh, it's, it's from that perspective of what's going on. Uh, so the early part of the story... Yes, certainly up to Abraham, um, is a story told by the people of Israel looking back. And, and certainly many people would say, look at the story of Adam and Eve, for example, uh, and the nation of Israel telling their own story uh, in exile much later. 
and interpreting it through the story of Adam and Eve. And so Adam and Eve are these people who have been given instruction by God about how to live, and yet they choose to rebel and disobey, and then they are cast out and find themselves in exile out of the garden. And in many senses, that is Israel's story as they now understand it. And so they are going back and they are asking themselves questions about their own identity and who they are um, and what God might have to say to them in that place. Yeah. Well, it's a, everybody's identity emerges over time as a social creation, doesn't it? So, so you have um, well. If, if, again, if you find yourself getting wound up in knots about exactly what happened when and how it all, you know, what are the, what are the details of how all this unfolded, then, um, then we, we do find ourselves, this, and what people sometimes have to do is build that into this kind of brick wall that then can't be touched because if you start poking and prodding at any of the little bricks in there and say, well, what if that's not true, uh, then the whole wall comes collapsing down because we've built our faith on this very, modernistic, fundamentalist way of kind of trying to understand what's going on in these texts. And if we can take a step back and say these are beautiful but confronting sometimes ancient stories being told about identity, about God, about the things that we continue to wrestle with, the fundamental experience of humankind, about the way we see one another, about the way we see ourselves and about what we believe about God. If we're able to do that, then I think these stories become a rich and beautiful resource for us to engage with in conversation rather than us spending our time trying to, you know, work out the timeline. Hang on, but if I do a timeline from here to here and I compare it, but if I start in that chapter and I work that back that way and then I'm missing seven years in between, hang on, let me, you know, times two, carry the one, minus Adam and whatever. (laughs) That's an interesting algebra. We're back to algebra again, but that was a very strange equation I just communicated with you. Um, Does that make sense? So if we're able to take ourselves into these stories uh, in a different kind of way, then what we find is this beautiful invitation into wrestling with humanness and the divine and what it is that shapes our lives, what values, what stories shape who we are and what we're like. Cool? Now we're going to continue talking about the Bible. So if you feel like, man, I don't feel I've got all this on lock yet. No problem. We've got several more sessions <laughs> before we are perfected Bible readers. Um, I guess my hope for tonight is to, in some senses, liberate you in the way you read these stories uh, and be able to ask the kinds of questions that we asked of them tonight and see where that takes us in the conversation. And as we do, we're engaging in our tradition. Uh, yeah? Okay. Let me say a prayer and then we're going to have some dinner, which Clint has lovingly prepared. Pad Thai. Thank you, Clint. Um, God, we um, thank you that you are present among us, that as we 
converse and think and wrestle and ask questions and as all sorts of things come to the surface, uh, doubt and faith, beauty and hope and more questions. I thank you that you are present in the midst of all of that and that somehow even in the process we are finding you uh, and we are being shaped and formed in some kind of way. Would we be people who live out of a story, out of a way of seeing that invites us to be participants in shaping the world in beautiful and good and peaceful ways? May we be people who resist the stories of violence and selfishness and competition and fear of otherness and may we be people who live into the story of loving kindness, of grace, grace, of mercy for one another, of hospitality, of generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.